Welcome to Full Body Frequency, the one-hour weekly show that celebrates everything full-bodied and fabulous. I'm Laura Rice, cultural curator, fashion designer, and your guide through the Full Body Frequency experience. This is the current through which we will explore the truths and explode the myths about the lives and loves of plus-size women. Since our lives shouldn't depend on how others see us, neither will this show. Full Body Frequency is the platform through which we will dialogue about moving through this world, fully engaged with passion and purpose. Our foundation, fashion, art, culture, beauty, health and wellness, travel, and love. This week's Full Body Frequency is all about dressing and undressing as metaphors for armor, power, masking, and presentation. In the flow, yours truly shares my opinion on Target's partnership with Lily Bulitzer, the short-lived Drop the Plus movement, and my spring fashion picks. Plus, I'll have more full-figured travel adventures that you can take this spring. Then internationally renowned, award-winning, Brooklyn-based photographer Leila Amatula Baran joins me for some global hotness. We'll talk about her rich body of work. We'll also talk about the perceptions and misperceptions of her black body while wearing a hijab and her recent trip to Abu Dhabi. In our last segment, we'll change frequencies with three members of the Femme Fatales, a new plus-size burlesque troupe making its world debut this week during the Flab and Fab review. Full Body Frequency is Visible, Viable, Voluptuous Radio. Stay tuned.
diva Jizori Grisetta Welcome back to Full Body Frequency. I'm Laura Rice, your host. Most of the time you'll hear me share segments with guests, but today I decided to do something a little different. Instead of a guest blogger for the flow, I'm flowing with you about a number of happenings in the plus size community. Let's start with the seemingly failed Drop the Plus campaign. For those of you who aren't familiar with Drop the Plus, It's a marketing campaign designed to eliminate the use of the word plus size as a descriptor for models who, starting at size 4, are labeled and work within the fashion industry as plus size models. The women behind the campaign, Australian model Stefania Ferrario and fellow countrywoman, actress and author A.J. Rochester. According to the Huffington Post, These two have been campaigning against the term plus size for weeks. The duo believe that the label is both counterproductive and harmful to young girls' self-esteem. According to Ferrario, models like her who are over a U.S. size 4 are considered plus size in the industry. I do not find this empowering, the model wrote on her Instagram account. I am not proud to be called plus But I am proud to be called a model. That is my profession. My response? One, you work in an industry where rejection is a regular part of the process. That said, your ego shouldn't be damaged just because you are being placed in the subcategory of plus size within the industry you work. Two, if you feel so disempowered, perhaps you should change careers or... And don't hate me for saying this, change your body to meet the non-plus-size model standards. I'll even approach this from another perspective. Most of us who wear sizes 14 through 24 and above would appreciate seeing plus-size models that actually look like plus-size women. Again, congratulations to Tess Monster, the 5-foot, 5-inch, size 22 model who recently signed with Milk Model Management. To date, she is the largest plus-size model to be signed with a mainstream agency. And you should know that Tess is on Team Keep the Plus, and she's spoken about the need for young women to see plus-size role models throughout mainstream media. Having worked in the apparel industry, I understand well the resistance to using the term plus-size. At Eileen Fisher, I was part of a team that met to resolve a number of issues around the company's collection for full-figured customers. In addition to revamping the sizing chart, one of the most pressing concerns was whether or not to move from the term woman to plus. Many of my smaller colleagues felt that plus-size women would be offended by the term plus. During these meetings, I was either the only full-figured woman or one of two plus-size women at the table. So naturally, I had to represent. I pointed out that at the time, the term plus was the industry standard and therefore valid and viable. 
Also, plus-size women generally and Eileen Fisher's 1 to 3X customers specifically had already embraced the term plus. Finally, the term woman, as related to Eileen Fisher customers, sizes 14 through 24, confused a number of Eileen Fisher Missy and Petite customers who shopped in the New York City Soho store, which sells all three collections. One Missy customer who wandered into the women's section remarked, Aren't we all women? Well, indeed, most of us are. In the end, Eileen Fisher embraced the term plus size, and its women's collection is now known as the Plus Collection. Going back to Drop the Plus, several designers, including Isaac Mizrahi, believe that there should be no segregation of clothing via size category. Now, the problem with that is that, outside of QVC and HSN, most designers and apparel companies include fewer options in their collections for plus-size consumers than for Missy customers. These collections, by definition, are different and unequal. Take, for example, Target's recently sold-out Lily Pulitzer collection. Plus-size customers were and are being offered fewer styles and are relegated to shopping online. As a matter of fact, I was in Target this past weekend, and there was clearly more than enough floor space to have included the Lily Pulitzer collection in the plus-size section. Target and Old Navy certainly aren't the only retailers that offer us online-only shopping experiences. Saks Fifth Avenue and Neiman Marcus do as well. And as much as things have changed within the fast fashion category for plus-size women, especially given the reemergence of Eloquy, the advent of ASOS, and the steadfastness of Torrid, Ashley Stewart, and Lane Bryant, it's frustrating that there are fewer options within designer or high-end collections. Don't get me wrong, I love some of what Marina Rinaldi and Eileen Fisher offer, but as Simon Doonan, Barney New York's creative ambassador-at-large said about the plus-size clothing industry, it's the last unexplored opportunity in the fashion business. If I were Tom Ford or Muchia Prada, I would make upscale, groovy, hip clothes for plus sizes. The problem is a prejudice against large sizes in the fashion business. Now this quote is from 2002, 13 years ago. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. These are my four final thoughts on the Drop the Plus campaign. I do believe that we can find a better term than plus size. It served its purpose and perhaps it's time to move on. One of the alternatives offered to replace the term plus size is curvy. The problem with that is that not all curvy women are plus size and not all plus size women are curvy. Whatever term we use, it must be a democratizing one. Selfishly, I like to be able to shop in a space that caters specifically to me. Can you imagine the frustration of having to comb through racks of clothes sizes 4 through 24? No thank you. My fourth thought, while folks have been debating drop the plus or keep the plus, Lane Bryant struck boldly with its I Am No Angel Cacique Lingerie campaign. Shrewd move, Lane Bryant, shrewd move. Not only has the campaign co-opted the synergy of Drop the Plus and Keep the Plus campaigns, but it has activated women, in particular young, full-figured ones, eager to let the world see via social media that we are body proud. While this campaign hasn't been without controversy, there are those who believe that competition amongst women of all sizes, 
small women depicted as Victoria's Secret Angels versus Lane Bryant's large anti-angels is counterproductive and feeds an environment of anti-sisterhood. Controversy aside, my personal wish is that the I Am No Angels campaign's main images would have featured all the models photographed in the same lingerie so that we could better see and appreciate the diversity of their bodies rather than being distracted by the lingerie's multiple styles and prints. That said, Lane Bryant scored a big win with making voluptuousness sexy, visible, and viable. Now, I'm working on scoring a big one. Well, several big ones. Despite the cooler than normal weather in the Windy City, I am so excited about enhancing my existing wardrobe with a few spring picks. If you haven't read my blog about shopping your closet, hit me up on either Full Body Frequency's Facebook page or via email at fullbodyfrequency at gmail.com, and I'm happy to send it to you. The reason I said enhance is because I believe you don't build personal style off of trends and that you shouldn't have to purchase a new wardrobe every season. Starting with Eileen Fisher, I'll take the drapey cocoon cardigan along with the icon's maxi cardigan in a linen knit. Next up, Eloquy. I'll take three of your easy midi dresses. When something works, stick with it. Let's head on over to Jabri and grab the cap sleeve crop blouse with attached sash, one of those high-waisted pencil skirts in pink or chartreuse, and one of my favorites, the off-the-shoulder slouch maxi dress. I need some fresh cotton rib tank tops from Lane Bryant along with some skinny jeans. And Marina Rinaldi is calling me with that yellow jacquard fern fill coupe coat. To be continued has some hot pink and cobalt blue cheetah print jeans that are a must. And how could I forget? A few new pieces from Courtney Washington are in order. His clothes are incredibly chic and packable. Speaking of packing, it's time to hit the road and have some fun. Starting this weekend, Friday, April 24th through Sunday, May 3rd, it's the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Staying south, it's all about big hats, mint juleps, and horses. What else but the Kentucky Derby, Friday, May 1st and Saturday, May 2nd. We'll head back up north to New York City and attend Harlem Eat Up, Thursday, May 14th through Sunday, May 17th. If you haven't listened to the Full Body Frequency episode on spring food and wine, check it out. My guest and wine expert, Brian Duncan, is a featured moderator during this inaugural foodie festival. Again, that's Harlem Eat Up. Thursday, May 28th through Sunday, May 31st, it's the 2015 Black Portraiture 2 Conference, Imaging the Black Body and Restaging History in Florence, Italy, featuring our own plus-size hero and crunk feminist, Dr. Brittany Cooper. While in Italy, plan to make a side trip to Venice for the Biennale. Finally, June 20th in New York City, it's the CurvyCon. This day-long event will bring plus-size brands, fashionistas, shopaholics, bloggers, and YouTubers into one room to chat curvy, shop curvy, and embrace curvy. Now, this event falls on the last day of full-figured fashion week. Again, that's in New York City. Don't worry. This is just the beginning of Full Body Frequency suggestions for 2015 travel adventures. Up next, Layla Amatula Baran's vision of a beautiful world through the lens of her camera. We'll be right back.
Pleased to be joined by Brooklyn-based photographer Leila Amatula Bahran. Her interest in documenting black life has taken her around the globe and back again. She's literally just returned from Abu Dhabi and is in Chicago to participate in the opening festivities for the amazing Dandelion Rearticulating Black Masculine Identity exhibit. It goes without saying that our contributions to the exhibit are outstanding. Layla, welcome. It's clear that you have a deep and abiding love for photographic images, and your work is full of rich color and vibrant tones. And again, I really just want to swim in the images that you capture. So when did you discover this love for images and begin to tap into your talent as a portrait and documentary photographer? Wow, so I was inspired by my mom. She always had a camera around. She always documented the family when I was younger. And I saw how important that was because uh, when my, my sister was born and when she started to grow up, uh, a lot of my family members passed away. So my sister wasn't able to meet a lot of the family members, but she was able to see them in images and see them in action and see them interacting with the family. And, and you know, we captured a lot of great moments when the family came over, birthdays and, you know, just Friday nights and different things like that. So I've, I saw that the images are very important uh, as in terms of like an archive, a memory um, document. Um, but as for myself, I think that I discovered how important and my love for documentation 
documenting the image when I went to the Million Women March. I uh, had a small assignment for a small paper. Um, I went down there. I took my camera, which is was, it wasn't a it wasn't a very technical at the time. It was just a point and shoot, but I was able to um, produce a lot of great images, and I came back with great images from that historical event. That's when I was just like, wow, I really like this. Soon after that, I invested in a SLR camera, more complex camera and some lenses. You know, I started to go from there. I'm self-taught. Mm. Everything was just on the ground, me learning through experience, me learning through shooting. And, and just, you know, every time it was, it was an experiment because it was film at the time. So I would shoot and develop the film and see what I got. And then I would go back and try things differently. So it was, it was a back and forth experience, learning experience. And that's what I love wonderful and it really comes across I mean it so does with with your love and you travel internationally quite often as a matter of fact you just returned from Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates and your work often centers around the intersections of race culture and the everyday lives of black people in Africa parts of the diaspora including Brooklyn so what influences the direction of your work Wow, sometimes it's really just my curiosity sometimes. Um, as you mentioned, I just came from Abu Dhabi. I was actually doing a three-part project in the Middle East, which would focus on the African presence in the Middle East. And so the first part was actually looking at the African-American expats that live there. And I found it interesting because, you know, at one point, Paris and France was the place where we felt comfortable and, and we migrated there. And then, you know, of course, you know, a lot of people went back to the continent, you know, to different nations in Africa and settled there. So I was just like, okay, so here's another part of the world where I see Afri African-Americans living and let me go over there and see what it's like, mm. you know, and I found it very intriguing and interesting. It's the Middle East, it's also Western Asia. So you have the, when you go there and you, you're hanging out with all your folks and you think you're in Atlanta, it's, it's incredible. <laughs> so it's a lot of my curiosity. You're Muslim. And so what role directly or indirectly beyond some of your subjects does Islam play in your work? Well, just in my life in general, just, just wanting to, just my love of God, my love of the prophets and Prophet Muhammad and all the other prophets that came before, um, just my wanting to make God happy through all of the things that he has prescribed for me. Those things affect me personally, and that's how I move through the world, being kind and, and treating other people who are God's creation as well, kindness and dignity and, and things like that. Yeah. So you and your work were recently featured in the Washington Post in a piece entitled The Roots of Fashion and Spirituality in Senegal's Islamic Brotherhood, The Bifall. And this work will be featured as part of the 2015 Black Portraitures Conference, Imaging the Black Body and Restaging Histories, May 28th through May 31st in Florence, Italy. Share a bit about this exhibit. I spent three years going back and forth to Senegal to photograph this community. They are Sufis. They come from an interesting historical perspective. Their leader was a nonviolent resist of French uh, colonialism. I thought that was interesting because we don't hear stories about what happened after the transatlantic slave trade got started. We, we don't hear what happened in between that and independence. Mm -hmm. I was just like, okay, this is an interesting story about Sufis, but it's also it also ties to French colonialism. It also ties to indigenous culture, and it also ties to Islam. It ties to fashion. It has, it has all of these different layers. So I decided to go investigate that, and so I um, spent three years, did some portraits, and the Washington Post was interested, so they published that. And an excerpt of that work will be exhibited in Florence, and the entire show will actually be opening at Mokata in Brooklyn on June 20th.
Woohoo! Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's great. So you mentioned that this particular group of people, they're Sufis. Explain a little bit about that to, to folks. Okay, so so Sufis are, are usually Muslims, and Muslims, um, you know, they follow the religion of Islam. And the religion of Islam was uh, founded by Muhammad. He was a prophet. You know, there's five pillars of Islam. Most people know about the fasting, Ramadan, and the praying five times a day, and uh, giving alms, you know, offering something to whatever spiritual community that you belong to, and declaring there's only one God. So it's one of the Abrahamic faiths, you know, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And so with this, with the Sufism approach, Sufis really aspire to be the closest as possible to God. They do that through different means. Most most popularly is uh, the means of chanting. Mm -hmm. You know, they try to chant and, and, and invoke the name of God and try to go into a trance, you know, to transcend what this realm right here. So they, they do that through chanting, they do that through meditation, and with the hopes of transcending. When I talk about the Holy Ghost, mm -hmm. when people are in church, they, they transcend, mm -hmm. you know, and they're speaking in tongues, and they're, they're not, you know, they've transcended something. And so that Sufis want to do that, be as close to God. They have this love for God. Rumi, he, all of his poetry was about his love for God. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm, it, sometimes mm -hmm. if you don't know that, you may think he's my, talking about romantic love. He loves the one, the creator. The one, the creator. Yeah, yeah that mm -hmm. is definitely a misconception. Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. absolutely. Okay. Yes. So now one of your exhibits, her words as witness, women writers of the African diaspora. Now that was an incredible group of portraits from everyone from Sonia Sanchez to Esperanza Spaulding to Sharifa Rhodes Pitts to Edgewich Dandicat and so so many more women and each woman was beautifully shot and you captured the individual essence of the spirit of each person. How did the process of this body of work unfold? Again, there was one time where I aspired to be a writer. And I love literature still, you know, but there was one point where I wasn't shooting as much I was writing and I was practicing. I came across a lot of women writers who wrote eloquently and they told the truth and they, and they just they loved their craft and they knew their craft and that was very inspiring to me. And some of the things that they wrote was really affirmed me as a black woman. So I, I did that project, I did that exhibition as a, as a visual love letter to them. Mm -hmm. Because I, I know that we know their words, we, we know their work, but sometimes we don't know how they look. And I think that if I was a young woman and I, and I read maybe Asha Bandeli's book, mm -hmm. And I was touched by it. And, I, and if I saw her face and I saw that she was a black woman like me, I would just feel that connection. I would feel inspired. Yeah. So I decided to, you know, to document them and photograph them and show the world as a group. Of course, we know how Susan Taylor looks. Her face right. was in essence every month for years. But to show them as a group, I put writers from different genres together just to show the connection. That's what it was. So it was my tribute. It was my visual love letter to these women, their, 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 their words, their work. Yeah. So is this love growing? Will you expand it? Yeah. The, the, the portrait? I've been shooting slowly because, well, I am planning to actually publish um, the book on Black Print Press. Mm, okay. So um, I'm looking to continue that throughout the summer and have um, a nice uh, cohesive body so we can get ready to publish the book in the fall. That's wonderful. Congratulations so on that. Appreciate it. Thank you. 
I would be remiss if we didn't speak about the fact that you are here in Chicago for the opening weekend of the phenomenal exhibit, Dandelion, Rearticulating Black Male Identity, which continues at the Museum of Contemporary Photography until July 12th. It's curated by the one and only Chantrell P. Lewis and features a range of black dandies from the U.S., Europe, and Africa. Tell us a bit about what listeners can expect to see during the exhibit and about your work, which is featured in the occupational dandy section of the exhibition. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, Dandelion is an ex- a phenomenal exhibition. I was part of the inaugural exhibition in Harlem back in 2010, five years ago. I think there's a lot of conversations that come from this exhibition about black men's style, about current times where clothes are political when people walk through the exhibition, they they just get so much because the men are photographed all over the globe. Mm -hmm. So you get all of these different contexts that these men are in. My work was Che Baraka, who is a native of Chicago, who's a black arts pioneer, who's a painter, who's now in New York City, and I photographed him in his studio. Yeah, and so I also photographed a younger man who, who I always see, you know, dressed very nicely. His name is Shaquille Williams, and, you know, I thought that it would be nice to document him, too, because just the way he, he takes care of himself and his, his style. And Well, you did two different things with these photos. Che was photographed in color, yes. and the other gentleman was photographed in black and white. And so what were some of the choices around that? When I walked into Che's studio, it was dark, it was very functional, and there were paintbrushes and things like that. I wanted to just get that feeling of it. He was in that studio working on his his recent show. Chase spent a lot of time in that studio working on this recent show which deals with African culture and spirituality and art. So I felt that in the studio so I wanted to to just really document that in all colors. Mm-hmm. Where Shaquem I saw a lot of patterns and I thought it would be interesting to show those patterns in black and white. I photographed him in an African tailor shop. I rarely shoot black and white so I just decided to try some 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 monochrome, you know, black and white with Shaquem. Just just try something new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really really a nice juxtaposition in terms of age Mm -hmm. and in terms of the location as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very nice. So during one of the Dandelion Symposium panels, you spoke about the ways in which you've been perceived in different countries based on the way you're dressed. And of course, the Dandelion is perceived by the way he dresses as well. So you mentioned that you're fully veiled or wearing the hijab. There have been conceptions and misconceptions about who you are and what you're doing. Talk a little bit about that. I think it's interesting. You know, when, when I'm in my hijab and I'm in New York City, I think people know, people understand the possibility that anyone can be Muslim. And, and they, they've seen the black Muslims, Latina Muslims, uh, white Muslims. And, and so, okay, you're a Muslim. You, this, here's a woman who has a hijab. She's covering her hair. Okay. It could be in, in many different styles. It can be maybe draped over. It can be like in a bun in the back. And, and then you can people would say, okay. But sometimes when you leave the United States and you may be in a place where the Muslims are maybe from a certain place, like maybe Indonesia, or you have a huge population from Sudan, mm-hmm. for example, So, and they may wear a particular style. If someone sees me and I'm not wearing that particular style, they may not think I'm Muslim, mm-hmm. or they may just think whatever. Like in being in Senegal, mm-hmm. um, 
a lot of people, they wear Western clothes, sure, but then they also have clothes sewn and made with the Dutch wax, mm-hmm. with the Bogolan or Bazin or, or whatever regional cloth there. And so if you're wearing uh, something more traditional or something more related to the regional style, you're perceived one way. But if you're in a suit, perceived another way, you may have different interactions. If you go to the market, you may get like a, a quadruple price for something. You may wear something traditional and not open your mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, you may be perceived as either local or, or, or near to the local scene. Well, one of the things you mentioned, though, was that when you were fully veiled one time, you were perceived as a prostitute. Yeah, so I think, you know, with race, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes I think that plays a part into it. If you're in a place like maybe downtown, walking into a hotel, mm-hmm. and maybe patrons of the hotel may not be you know, always used to a black woman walking into that hotel, regardless of what she might have on. Mm-hmm. Like in the case of me, I had a hijab, I was veiled, mm-hmm. but that didn't matter. It was mm-hmm. just like, I'm a black woman, I don't belong there. She must be a prostitute. She cannot be renting a room or, or there on business. So, I mean, I, I always think that's interesting. You know, you get the cat call, you get the, the signal. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's so offensive. The images that are broadcasted out to the world of people of color, you know, it's so peculiar. It yeah, is. It's very peculiar. What do you have any plans to explore this idea of other people's gaze and misconceptions of us as women in particular in a future project? Mm-hmm. I think I want to explore it. I always I wait for the right time. Mm-hmm. Like when the idea it really comes together and it makes sense, and I know how I'm going to move forward, or I, I know how these ideas are going to be represented. So I do want to explore, but I don't know how I'm going to execute it yet. But that's something I do want to explore in the future. That's great. I'm looking forward to yeah, that. Thank you. In that same vein of women as narrative subjects, one of my favorite photos of yours is a powerful picture of Dr. Kyla's story. It's part of You May Sit Beside Me visual narratives of black women and queer identities. Now, would you ever consider shooting a body of work of full-figured women? Oh, yeah. I think that would be awesome. Actually, Leonard Nimoy, mm-hmm. he, he was a phenomenal photographer. He did a, a series of nudes of women with all types of body sizes. I think many of them were full-figured. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I would love to do that. I think that would be very exciting. Great. Well, sign yeah. me up. <laughs> I <Absolutely>. volunteer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Would the women be veiled? Would they be uncovered? How would you approach that? Do you know? With being a documentary photographer, I like to document what is happening in real time, what is authentic, what is true. Mm-hmm. Whoever I would be photographing, Photographing, it would be who they were. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times when I do photograph, it's always a collaboration because I know that a lot of times we're not in, in control of our image. It's always like, well, but my subjects, we have a conversation. How would you like to be represented? Mm. You know, how, how do you want your image to look? How do you want your picture to look? Mm. So I would, um, it would definitely be a collaboration and conversation. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Really wonderful. Leila Amatula Bohan, Global Citizen documentary and portrait photographer. Thank you for your work and for joining me today. Are you living paycheck to paycheck? Do you want to break free of this cycle? There is no better time than now to get your finances in order. The National Foundation for Credit Counseling is a nonprofit organization ready to help. To reach a certified counselor for tips on how to recover from debts or help in developing a budget, contact the NFCC at 1-800-388-2227 or visit debtadvice.org. That's 1-800-388-2227 or debtadvice.org. A public service message from the NFCC. 
when we return from this quick break, we'll move from the sartorial to the sublime, and we'll continue our conversation on dressing and undressing as metaphors for armor, power, masking, and presentation as we change frequencies with three members of the Femme Fatales, a new plus-size burlesque troupe. Stay tuned. It's a downright rotten, low down, dirty shade. Oh, it's a downright rotten, low down, dirty shade. The way. Treating poor me, you know 
Frequency is back. If you've just tuned in, I'm Laura Rice. Joining me now are three members of the Femme Fatales, a burgeoning plus-size burlesque troupe on a mission to transform the way women and femaline people view their own bodies and worth. Two of you, Molotov Cocktees, and that's a mouthful, and Iridescence. And no, these are not their birth names. Join forces earlier this year to create a fat-positive safe space for both plus-size burlesque performers in Chicago and those looking to break into the industry. One such seasoned burlesque performer, Jelly Mae Jones, is also here with us. Ladies, welcome to Full Body Frequency. Thank you so much. Thank you. You are quite welcome. So first, what are the differences between cabaret, striptease, and burlesque? Okay, well, this is Jelly Mae Jones. In my experience, the difference between burlesque and cabaret and striptease is a lot of times you get it used interchangeably. Cabaret really describes the environment, sort of a dirty dinner theater. Um, burlesque um, is, is really a, a separate art form, and striptease is one part of burlesque, which is the actual removing of clothes. Um, so burlesque can involve music, dancing, juggling, fire eating, glass walking, all kinds of different things that you don't necessarily see at a strip show. And so a lot of times when you are seeing cabaret, it's that you are seeing all of that with dinner and drinks. Iridescence, what is plus-size burlesque and why plus-size burlesque? It's just the, uh, it's burlesque with exclusively large bodies. And it's actually really important because within Chicago, there's no troupe that's just plus-size. And it's important for us to have a group of just plus-size people because it creates a safe environment for um, performers who are plus-size and new to, the, new to the business, so to speak. So as opposed to performing at a bar show and an exclusively plus-size place, people know what they're coming to see all the time because this, that's just what we are and what we give. You know, we're plus-size people doing burlesque. So Great. So Molotov cocktees. In the context of both mainstream and plus-size burlesque, what does Femme Fatales offer that doesn't already exist, and what are your individual journeys to burlesque? I think the space that we're providing is for what society might perceive as not like the perfect plus-size body. We you know, embrace all of our bodies, you know, whether they're 
Like we, we start around like a size 14, but we go way up above that. And right now there's, you know, a lot of campaigns that are like geared towards, in quotations, plus size bodies, but they're really like the, the acceptable plus size. And we just want to like veer away from that there's an acceptable way or like a certain way that you can be plus size. We're just championing all bodies. And then for myself, I actually grew up in Germany in the theater. Both my parents employed in the theater. When I moved to America seven years ago, I kind of didn't really find anything, like any creative outlet that kind of allowed me to do all the things I did back in Germany. And so for like the last seven years that I've been in America, I haven't really done much. And now I'm just said it's enough. I'm going to just create that space for myself. And that's just why I created this, to have fun with myself and with other people to just celebrate my size and have a space for that. Yeah. Great. And what about you, Jelly Mae Jones? Like most of us in the troupe, danced as a child. Then around the time I got into my teens, I realized that I could do theater and still eat, though I moved over to theater. Within the last couple of years, I realized that I just really missed dancing. And instead of having that, well, if I lose 40 pounds, if I do this diet, then maybe it'll be okay for me to go back. I'm not really sure how I found burlesque in Chicago. I just stumbled upon it and fell in love with it. I saw some clips from uh, Jeezy's Jig Joint, which is actually coming back to Chicago this year. And it was really empowering to see not only burlesque of all sizes, because there was a wide variety of sizes, but also women of color performing. And realizing that it was not just a, a Dita Von Teese, you know, sort of, sort of space. It was a space that I could occupy. And when I met Molotov Cocktease and Iridescence about a year ago, um, and they said, you know, we're, we're going to put together this troupe, I was like, great, because I'm a plus-size performer. And it was the first time in the last year of doing burlesque that I felt like this is a space that is just going to be for me, as opposed to approaching every routine and every act knowing that you're going to be the size of everyone else on stage combined and that you might be able to win over the audience and they might be like wow she moves really good for a fat girl or wow she was surprisingly sexy for a fat girl I can just go be sexy full stop because all of us are sexy and all of us are amazing dancers and it's just going to be a really transformative moment I think not only for the people on stage but the audience and that's empowering so iridescence what about you what has your journey been to burlesque I've known about it for many years now. When I was getting into my teenage years, I would like watch old footage of burlesque online or on television, and I'd watch it with my sister. And I don't know, it just sort of resonated with me. Like I've always wanted to be sexy. That's just something that's been inside of me for the longest time. But it was always something that like I saw myself doing once I became magically thin. In high school, I ended up joining the theater group and participating in a few plays and like honing my skill and my stage presence. And after that, I kind of used the skills I gained from theater. And then I also had a small bit of dance technique when I was a child as well. All of those things sort of just mixed together. And then I decided that one day, once I lose weight, I would be you know, a burlesque performer or at least try my hand at it. And then when I was introduced to the idea that, you know, fat bodies are not full and that it's perfectly okay for me to be a person of size, and I realized I don't have to wait until I lose weight, which is frankly just never going to happen because that's not what my body is designed to do. Now I can be a person of size and I can be sexy and I can be a plus-size burlesque performer. And once I got my confidence, that's really when... Um, I decided that I could do plus-size burlesque. 
Okay, and, and so how well. did you join forces, specifically you and Molotov Cocktees? The two of us have been online on Tumblr, um, Molotov Cocktees and I, like blogging about body positivity and fat positivity for a while now. And when I learned she was in Chicago, I sent her this message. I was like, oh, my gosh, you're in Chicago. I'm in Chicago. And then she um, ended up asking me to meet up with her. And she actually did this thing called like the, I think it was like the Fat Belly Babes Meetup. Yeah, the (laughs) Fat Belly Babes Meetup right after the 4th of July. So she and I met for the first time through that, and we hit it off immediately. And and then she asked me, I think that day, like if I I could see myself doing that, and I was like, you know who you're talking to, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously I was down, and then I saw that um, Red Hot Annie from Vodzilla was having this ice cream social at the Vodzilla studio. And so Molotov Cocktees and I went there, and that's where we met Jelly Mae Jones, and all of her fabulousness, and we we proposed the idea, and she was like, yeah, that's what I need. And end of January um, of 2015, when we had like our first big meeting, we had like, I think it was like 16 people or something at my house, um, convening to come up with a name, to come up with, you know, like, what is it really that we want to be? The next week we started rehearsing. We have, I'd say like 13 solid dancers now, and we have just a, a horde of people that are, you know, like makeup artists and videographers and all this stuff that like kind of like part of the troupe now as well. So if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Full Body Frequency. I'm Laura Rice. My guests are three members of the film. Fetals, Molotov, Cocktease, Jelly Mae Jones, and Iridescence. Now, within Burlesque, as both solo performers and as members of a troupe, do you all specialize in or explore specific styles or themes? And if so, what are they? I'll start with you, Jelly Mae. Well, I think one of the things I have really enjoyed about it is that there's not any one set theme. I think that there's sort of the preconception that, well, it's a fat troupe, so it's going to be a bunch of fat-oriented numbers. And one of the things this show will really inform people of is the, the diversity of our experiences. You know, one of the things that happens when you're part of being othered is that you also get labeled into this really small box. Mm. And one of the things that I've been seeing in social media lately is that there's a lot of times in media that the fat suit thin actors or dancers adopting a fat suit and trying to tell our story. Absolutely. And one of the things that is really amazing about this troupe and the audience is going to love is, is having an opportunity to see our bodies tell our stories. Mm-hmm. Because there are certain stories that you're going to see in this routine, and I can't give away anything as far as what you're performing, but there are certain stories that only a genuine fat body can tell. And that there's things that even people who have been longtime fans of burlesque and have seen dozens of shows, you won't have seen this happen before because it can't happen without our bodies to do that. Mm. And that's really, really exciting and really empowering is that you're going to see bodies in a different way. And hopefully they'll see their own bodies in a different way. Because I know for me, my routine that I've put together, the solo I'm doing, is, is very personal. is a very personal experience. But just from practicing it in rehearsals, it was amazing seeing the diversity of people who had those aha moments of recognition of, oh, yeah, I've done that. I've been there. That's my story. And that there's, there's no one body type that has felt that way. I've, it's been really surprising to me the, the kinship that people have with that story. That's amazing. Are your names selected based on your dance style, elements included in your performances, your personalities, physical attributes, or do you choose your name by your first pet 
and the street you grew up on. You know, everyone goes around Facebook and talking, oh, yeah, let me get my stripper name. But obviously you all are burlesque dancers, so I'm assuming the process is slightly different. Well, yeah. There's, so, a, yeah. there's a sorting hat, just like. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, go for ahead. Me, for me, actually, my blogging persona, my online persona is iridescence, but actually my stage name and my burlesque performer name, my entertainer name is Jezebelli, uh-huh. which is informed by this this kind of trope of the, the Jezebel, you know, the sultry, overly sexual black woman. Um and mixed with belly because there's no reason why my sexuality should be something that's a trope. I am sexual, and it's kind of the idea of that as a fat body, like I'm desexualized, but at the same time as a black woman, like I'm hypersexualized. So it's just kind of playing on those two things and mixing them together to make this totally adorable name, Jezebelli. Go ahead, Molotov cocktees. Yes, okay, so... As we know, a Molotov cocktail is something that explodes. When I was in Germany growing up, um, I was a graffiti artist. My weapon of choice was Molotov. It's a paint brand, and it's spelled with a W, whereas Molotov cocktail is, you know, with a um, V. And then I am a cocktease. That's what I do. Of entertainers, I find, have very European love this and do that, you know, in their stage names. And so I didn't want anything that sounded sort of... French. A European mash. I wanted something that sounded like my background, like my roots. So that was Jones. May, there's two matriarchs in my family, both my maternal and paternal side, who had May in their names. And they were real strong firebrand women. And I think that if they had lived in a different generation, they'd, they'd be, you know, behind me doing this, doing something audacious like this. And jelly comes from that old saying, must be jelly because jam don't shake like that. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, Femme Fatales will make its debut on Friday, April 24th in Chicago. So that's right around the corner. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what styles, do, as much as you can share, can your audience look forward to experiencing during the presentation of the Flab and Fab Review? Yeah, so there's um, going to be a well, lot of jiggling okay. and a lot of food things. So be prepared. And um, you might want to come with a full stomach because we might make you hungry if you're not. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> so food and what was the other thing? Food and? A lot of jiggling. And a lot of jiggling. Mm-hmm. So food and jiggling. Okay. Yes. In terms of styles, a styling of the burlesque dance that you'll do. I would say dance style. Definitely like some, some jazz technique in there. Maybe even, I'm not sure. Some modern. Some modern, Yeah. Come um, and find out, you know. There you go. Yeah, there there's, you go. <laughs> and so how can people get tickets? Tickets are available online, both online and in the box office at Stage 773. So people can either go there before, preferably, or the day of and get a ticket from the box office. They can call by phone and have a ticket ordered, or they can go online. And the link is posted on both our Instagram and our Facebook page, there's a, a link to Vendini for tickets. And so your Facebook and Instagram pages are? Facebook.com slash the Femme Fatales Burlesque. No spaces, no underscores. It's just all one word. And then I think the Instagram is the same. It's the Femme Fatales Burlesque, yeah. Okay. And so is this how people can reach you to join you to learn and perform the art of burlesque? Same oh, yeah, information? Okay. We do have an email, which is also the femme fatales burlesque at gmail.com. 
And, you know, when we were just starting out, we were very, very open. And it's not to say that we will never be open again in the future because we definitely will be. And we're definitely looking for guest performers. The ladies, Iridescence, Molotov, Cocktees, and Jelly Mae Jones, thanks so much for joining me and sharing Plus Size Burlesque with the Full Body Frequency audience. And for more information about the Femme Fatales, their upcoming The Flab and Fab Review, or anything else you've heard on today's show, please visit the Full Body Frequency Facebook page. Until next time, tune into your own Full Body Frequency, where large is luscious living.